what is the likelihood that an 83 Republican, 67 Democrat House is going to pass vouchers? Probably not very high. Probably less than uh, Chancellor Sharp throwing up a hook em horns here on campus. <laughs> 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 <Okay>. <laughs>
I can count to 76, and, and certainly, uh, you know, to his credit, he did a magnificent job of assembling that, uh, that consensus yep. among members of both sides of the aisle, and that was done uh, in a very dramatic and compelling way. And, and conclusive uh, fashion. And conclusive. He so. put out a list today with 109 names on it. Your name was not on that list. Would you like to add your name to that list tonight? I have already sent uh, Speaker Bonin a congratulatory message and and uh, endorsing him and wait and hoping that for successes for all of us right. in the Texas House. Mr. Price, you were part of what I would refer to as a Sunday news dump. You uh, you announced on Sunday when only a few of us were paying attention that you were out of the race and you were supporting uh, Chairman Bonin. Why? What happened? It, it's a process, obviously a difficult choice to get into the race, and I want to take a moment to congratulate Chairman Darby and the other candidates that actually put their name out there to, to run in the first place. It's a difficult decision to do that. Right. It's also a difficult decision to, to take your name off. And for me personally, uh, looking at you know uh, the race, and you do it throughout each and every day, and it's a very fluid process, um, it, it became clear to me that, that we were all kind of stuck. Um, at least uh, at the time, there were lots of different members who were supporting different candidates, and really it had been that way for, for a few weeks since Chairman Bonin got in. And he seemed uh, very well positioned to not only um, you know, get a majority of the Republicans uh, in our party, but a lot of the Democrats uh, as well, and, and that was important to, to elect a speaker who could do that, in my opinion, and I think in several folks' opinion, so that you would have an elected speaker who was coming to that position from a position of, of broad support and, and strength. Yep. And so uh, for me, it was a process uh, just to get to the point where I could make that decision, and Sunday's when I got there. Got it. Mr. Ashby, you're comfortable with the outcome of this? Absolutely. Speaker Bonin, you're for Speaker Bonin. Ms. Gonzalez, you're on that list as well. Yes, sir. You're for it. Um, Representative Boris, you're on the list, but are you for Speaker Bonin? I mean, I, I'm not against uh, Dennis. I mean, you know, my, my candidate sitting up on the stage, you know, Drew, and, you know, I, made, I let people know that I, you know, I came to support Drew, you know, somewhat late in the race. But again, as I, I've known Dennis for a while, and, you know, we've worked on a whole bunch of things in the House, and I think it's incumbent on all of us on the stage to make sure that he's successful, yeah. in particular for our districts. I mean, I. I uh, it, it would have been great for us to have a speaker from San Angelo, Texas. I mean, if you notice, you know, you, you hear the, the numbers of the districts, you know, 72, 75, 74, we're all neighbors. And, and it's not, it wasn't, you know, me or somebody else against uh, Dennis, but we were right. for something, and this is what it was. And, and again, you know, as, uh, as Drew pointed out, it's the will of the House, and, and this is what we need to do go forward. We need to make sure that Dennis is successful, and I think we'll do that. Right. Now, I had this idea that we were going to talk tonight about the idea of possibly having a rural speaker. We had a Again, all the way back on Saturday, the Stone Age, <laughs> there were candidates from San Angelo and Amarillo, Nagadochis, Weatherford. I liked our odds of having a rural speaker <laughs> based know, on those numbers. You know, Evan, this morning I liked our odds too. Did you this morning? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Representative Ashby, uh, the, somebody pointed out to me that the last rural speaker was Pete Laney, and there may not be a rural speaker for, for a little while longer. Um, how significant is it to rural Texas that the leadership of the House be somebody who knows rural, who is rural, who understands rural? Or is that overblown as, a, as, a, as something we ought to be thinking about? Well, look, I think if, uh, I mean, if you ask, yeah, I don't want to say all of the rural members of the House, but most of the rural members, I mean, of course, naturally, we would love to see uh, he or she uh, be representative of a, a rural community, a rural county. Um, 
but I think more importantly than having a speaker from rural Texas, it's to your point about having a speaker that understands the importance of rural Texas. As you said, I love the tagline earlier. Uh, you know, Texas is rural and rural is Texas, and that's exactly right. Um, you know, since I served in the House, uh, we, we've had a speaker that uh, has recognized the importance of rural uh, and uh, has allowed rural, I think, to uh, even under someone from Bexar County, uh, has allowed us to continue to uh, operate, represent our districts, uh, and frankly has allowed us to uh, protect the interest of, of the, the values of people that are blessed to call rural Texas home. And uh, I'm uh, equally optimistic under, uh, um, you know, Speaker Bonin that uh, rural Texas is going to continue to flourish. Mr. Darby, before we move on to, to the issues that will define the next session, you're the longest serving member represented on this stage. You, you know, the old adage I, I'm about the, the most grizzled. And you're most grizzled. grizzled. Well, <laughs> I like how I said it, but that's fine. Um, uh, you know that the old adage about the legislature is that the fault line in our legislature for years has not been Democrat and Republican or liberal and conservative, or even, as much as it may seem to be the case today, House and Senate. But it's rural and urban. Oh, absolutely. I've, right. That's been my tagline. Is, is that still the case? You know, Texas now has six of the 20 largest big cities in the country, more than any other state. One could look at those numbers and think rural versus urban has been decided and urban won. Could you disabuse us of that? I'm not going to disabuse you of that. I will say that for years I've been telling folks that, that uh, you know, we don't grow beef cattle in the back of the HEB. <laughs> now, to transport, we need to educate some folks that cotton is not grown in the back of the men's warehouse either. If you want your food, fiber, hide and hair, energy, you've got to co go, come across somebody's farm, somebody's ranch to get there. Yeah. And, and people in big cities, just like us, like to eat. They like to drive their cars. They like to have their energy. And the reality is that comes from rural Texas. And, and so my, my message has always been just give us a little water. Leave us a little water. Uh, just give us some good roads and connectivity to get there and back. Give us some good schools. Give, give money for our public education. Yeah. Uh, here, here. And, and make sure we have a qualified workforce and the tools. And, and, and most of all, too, have access to health care, uh, whether it be uh, uh, level one trauma access or, or certainly our rural hospitals and we'll talk about all this right. later but are closing and so uh, just get, leave us those basic tools to build a great community our, our communities and then we'll deliver we'll deliver to the rest of the state and so that's been my message for a number of years and I will tell you everyone on this stage is a is uh, is singing that song too. So Same hymnal, right? You, yeah. you have a great panel here of people who uh, uh, have helped deliver that message. Yeah. Even though we may not have had a, a rural speaker, we've had rural impact because we've had quality members who have the ear of the speaker right. and and keep preaching about those messaging. Good. Well, let me take your baton on the health uh, you're, you're tipped up the health issue first and, and go to uh, Chairman Price. 
So you touch health in a lot of different ways in this legislature, Chairman. Chairman of Public Health, chair of that select committee on opioids, and also previously you chaired the select committee that resulted in significant support on mental health. Right. So you understand those issues and not only those issues. When you look at the next session, what do you see for health care as it relates to rural? Chairman Darby said correctly, one big problem has been the closure of hospitals. That's affected rural communities from one end of the state to the other. What, 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 are, you, what are you looking ahead to in the next session as it relates to health care in rural? Well, in, in some respects, uh, certainly when we look at our rural communities and we look at health care in those communities, access to quality care is high up on the list. And, yep. and so we, we did make some progress last session with telemedicine legislation, with some loosening of some restrictions on advanced practice nurses and, and some of the things that we did to actually, I think, improve some access issues. There's still a long way to go. The closures of rural hospitals across the state due to the financing structure and some of the demands that are placed on them are significant. And if any of our communities lose rural hospitals or access to quality care, uh, you start to see that affect education. People won't move there, they will leave there, so it affects our schools and then the funding that they get. It affects, obviously, um, you know, the communities in such significant ways that it is one of the legs of the stool that we depend on to keep the, uh, the community strong. So I think in the next session we'll see an emphasis, or there should be an emphasis on the way rural hospitals are funded so that we can make sure that they are maintained adequately and protected. I think we will strengthen our, uh, our resources there through bills like last session, uh, HB 13, SB 292, which provided collaborative grants for behavioral health and other um, uh, related matters. And we carved out in those bills certain percentages that had to be allocated to rural communities. So we just didn't say, here's a pot of money, everybody go feed from the same trough because we know that gets you know soaked up by the Dallas, Harris, and Travis counties of the world. What we did was say certain percentage of this has to go to rural communities. So I think if we continue uh, our funding uh, resources, uh, allocation streams to always consider our rural communities to, to uh, make sure that they have what's, what's necessary for them to thrive, that is uh, of serious and significant importance. I think that with regard to rural hospitals and making sure that we have uh, adequately staffed and, and maintained from a financial standpoint, system of network, a framework that allows us to, uh, to uh, keep that in place, that's also very important. And, and the last thing I'll mention here is, is the opioid and substance abuse work that we've been working on. What's been really interesting about that is, uh, you know, Four of the cities in a recent healthcare report that have this, uh, the most significant problem in the country, four of the top 25 are in the state of Texas. Right. It was Amarillo, Odessa, Longview, and Texarkana. Um, so, you know, it's, it's significant that we, uh, that we pay attention to those metrics and that we right. actually devote some of our time and attention to improving not just the delivery of health care, but some of the, right. the health care related problems that exist in our rural community. Now, the byproduct of your mental health work, Chairman, was that the legislature appropriated more money for mental health than it had in a number of sessions. And the focus was on mental health because of the work of the committee. So what will the byproduct of your select committee work on opioids be in real dollar terms or in real legislation terms? Well, in terms of dollars, that's hard for me to actually, you know, put a number on it right now because a lot of the the policies, our report was just issued last week. Right. And so 
you know, the legislation that will result from the recommendations made uh, will certainly be derived from the, the work that the committee's done, and then we'll see what it costs in terms of whether or not some of these programs can be scaled or whether or not you'd want to do it statewide. Yeah. I think, I think by and large, uh, a lot of the, the recommendations that you'll see or read about in that community involve law enforcement. Yep. They involve uh, the risk to the, uh, the, the, uh, the folks that are dealing with this on the front lines, uh, our ERs, and um, you know, what we can do by way of education on the front end and prevention. Uh, we're already making uh, headway there with health plans yep. and some others. So I think uh, what you'll see is better practices, better prescription practices, maybe some limitation on prescription days, uh, possibly some, some you know, educational and prevention programs and initiatives that will educate our dispensers and our physicians better. Yep. We'll strengthen the PMP. For instance, that'll probably cost somewhere about $5 million if we want to make that part of the workflow, workflow process for our physicians. Right now, pharmacists have to check it. Physicians don't have to check it until 2019. Physicians are saying if we have to go to a different page or a different link to actually pull that up and look, while we may be required to do it, if that takes two to three to five minutes per patient and I've got 40 per day, that actually adds up. And so what I'd like is when I pull up their electronic health records, it's part of the information that I look at right there. They don't want to have to pay for that. So they, right. they don't want the unfunded mandate. That's something that if we choose to pay for, it'll probably go a long way in making certain that that becomes more effectively utilized, right. which will help us all. Uh, Representative Ashby, I'm listening to uh, Chairman Price talk about all the ways in which we can focus on healthcare. One way in Texas that we have of late begun to think about the healthcare problem is through the gradual me graduate medical education uh, door. That's right. We don't only have an access to coverage problem, as is often said about Texas, but we have an access to care problem. More than half the counties in Texas are health professional shortage areas as designated by the federal government. There are whole counties without any doctors, I think 35 at last count, without any doctors in the state of Texas at all. So you're the education funding guy. What are we going to do on GME stuff as it relates to health care tied back to education in the next session? Well, over the last uh, two sessions, the uh, legislature has uh, really zeroed in uh, on this uh, effort to try to graduate more uh, uh, me medical students. Uh, and as you just uh, illustrated, again, I think that number may be a little higher than 35, but there are a number of counties, uh, uh, rural counties across the state that have no single doctor in their boundaries. That is a huge problem. Uh, just in, uh, you know, this issue it was really, a cri I consider it a crisis, you know, and, it, and it, it, the healthcare component really, I think, probably speaks to all of us. You know, just in my six counties, uh, in the last year or year and a half, I've had two hospitals close in two, in two of those six counties. Yep. Now one has since uh, reopened, but um, it has a, a, a huge impact. And as you drill down into what are the problems that we're facing, one of the main issues is the recruitment of physicians to rural Texas. And uh, we're, we're looking at kind of a grow your own type program uh, for our GME students. Uh, as you may be aware, there's a a uh, new college going in at Sam Houston State University that has a focus uh, on graduating rural physicians. Uh, there's a number, number of other universities uh, that uh, also are focused in this area. The work that Texas A&M uh, Rural Health does, Dr. Nancy Dickey is incredible yep. uh, and working across the state in all of our counties to help our rural communities. Um, but there's no question that we can't uh, rest on our laurels in terms of 
the, the single fact that we don't have enough physicians in Texas, but we really don't have enough physicians in rural Texas. And when you talk about economic development, you know, trying to recruit industries and manufacturers and jobs to rural Texas, you've got to have access to health care. And so, uh, just like you've got to have access to a quality education system. Right. And so, all of these are linked, uh, but there's no question that we've made some progress over the last two sessions in increased funding uh, yeah. for rural health care and for our GME expansion across the state. But we've got a lot more work to do there. And I'm, right. I'm looking forward to continuing to work with my colleagues and, and really advocating for that. So, Ms. Gonzalez, Mr. Ashby, and then everybody else, if you want to get in on this, on the question of education more broadly, public and, and higher. Chairman Darby called out the importance of making certain that rural communities have enough money to educate their kids. But we know that we're in the middle of a, a, a persistent discussion about school finance. We don't know where it's headed. Uh, speaker designate Bonin, is that what I should call him today? Uh, said today at his press conference, my number one priority for the session is school finance. That's, I'm sure, something that everybody can, can get behind that, that focus. Uh, Representative Gonzalez, what, what are the biggest challenges and the biggest opportunities on the funding front for education in rural? I mean, the biggest opportunity is that it's a bipartisan, it has bipartisan support, that it's a really a commitment, I think, to the entire House. Very few issue, issues that all of us sincerely want to change, and so that's right. a great opportunity. Um, a struggle is, unfortunately, last session, I think we did do some good work in the House when it came to public school finance. And then it got caught up in the political games of the House and the Senate. And I will blame the Senate every day, all day, um, for any, any problems that we have in the legislature. And so, um, so you know, that's, that's always going to be a struggle. Can we focus on school finance without it getting wrapped up in other things like vouchers, for example? Because for, for rural right. Texas, in my opinion, um, vouchers are very dangerous for public education. And so when it gets wrapped up in that, then that's when you see the urban-rural divide really mixed into this conversation. Right, Chairman Darby, that actually is a place where as much as there are not a whole lot of bipartisan issues in the legislature at the moment, there did seem to be some bipartisan agreement on the question of vouchers in the last session. It was Republicans and Democrats mm -hmm. who opposed it to the degree that the issue has now gone nowhere for three consecutive sessions. Is that right? Chairman Darby. Oh, Chairman Darby? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Chairman. Uh, I, I will tell you. I don't care what happened today. I still want you in every conversation that we have. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I will tell you that uh, there's, there's no more important issue for educating the future of our state than trying to make sure that all available resources go to educate public students. Public students. <laughs> The idea that we would take public dollars and divert, div, divert them to private or parochial schools without any accountability is just abhorrent to me. Yeah. And I will vigorously oppose that, and I think everyone on this dais will vigorously oppose that. Right. Uh, so, but it, it's one of those boomerang type issues that seem to be coming back, but we kill it every time. We, we have a, there's usually a Herrero amendment in the budget saying no public dollars will go to uh, vouchers. It is the kill card, isn't it? It is a kill card, <laughs> and, uh, and, and I'm sure that we'll discuss it. I'm sure that we'll kill it again. Yeah, right. M Mr. Ashby, the fact is that if a 95 Republican, 55 Democrat House could not get vouchers through, what is the likelihood that an 83 Republican, 67 Democrat 
House is going to pass vouchers, probably not very high. Probably less than uh, Chancellor Sharp throwing up a hook em horns here on campus. <laughs> 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 <Okay>. <laughs> Not that's, to, a, that's a nice quote. That's not, a not, likely yeah. <laughs> not likely to happen. He was uh, naming that. He was uh, yeah. naming that. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, the, uh, I, I'll chime in here on this because I, I know that all of my colleagues uh, are passionate about the issue of uh, public education on this stage. And, um, you know, it's a big reason why I first ran. You know, like uh, Poncho, I was, I was on the school board and uh, didn't like what I saw in the 2011 session uh, and, uh, and ran. Uh, on a largely uh, a pro-public education agenda. And, uh, you know, it seems like every session, you know, we, 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 you know, we have this same conversation about, you know, rewriting our school finance laws. Nobody's, you can't find a single member of the Texas House that will tell you they like the current school finance funding formulas. You just can't find it. The, the conundrum has been trying to find the fix. And uh, for the last two sessions, I've been really uh, proud of the work that the House has done. And I know Jimmy Don Acock is here in the audience, and he led the effort a couple of sessions ago. Had a great bill uh, last session. Uh, Chairman Huberty had a great bill, but again, just we weren't able to get across the finish line. Uh, but you know, I would say, really, to try to keep this short, you know, for a guy like me, and I think a lot of rural Texas, you know, we feel like that our kids are just as, are worth just as much as the kids in Highland Park or in Houston or in Eanes ISD or, or you know, Bear County. And so for a guy like me, equity is a, a big issue. I, I think we've got to, uh, maybe we'll never have exact parity in terms of per-pupil funding, but we can't have some school districts, districts at, you know, $11,000 and the rest are some at, you know, my district at 5000 because I can't go, go home and explain to my constituents why that, why that happens is because, again, we've, we basically yep. have a system that's funded on zip codes. And so Texas is better than that. And so we've got to get to a, a formula, a reworked formula, that I think, that treats kids equitably. Yep. Uh, and we fund it adequately so that, um, that our kids, no matter where you live in Texas, whether it's rural Texas or the urban suburban areas, that we are giving them access to the broadest future that we can offer them, and that is through a quality education system. Chairman, Chairman Ashby's talking about something that gets ignored in the school finance conversation. Not just updating it, but the equity component. And he's completely right. My district, same thing. Um, to Highland Park, it's $3,000 less between Socorro ISD and Highland Park ISD. Put a classroom of 30, that's $90,000 per year less. And if you think about K through 12, imagine how little, how less that student is getting in their lifetime. And so the right. equity thing just gets ignored. Uh, let me get uh, Mr. Navarris into this conversation. Another, finally. Finally, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I wanted another conversation forever. I was worried I was going to lose you there if I didn't get you. <laughs> um, so I was in Eagle Pass with you on Friday. And I met uh, your superintendent, yes. and I met members of your school board, as you were a former school board member. And I know that where you and Mr. Ashby come at this is from the same place. You've seen the sausage being made, yeah. right, from the school board perspective. And you know that this is not just an abstraction, this idea that not having enough money um, is a problem. You actually have, you saw it on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. You know, and it, and, it's, and, it, and it touches a lot of different issues. One of them is, you know, and, and I think my district is not much different for, from anybody else's regarding uh, Chapter 41 and Chapter 42 schools. And so we've got schools that, you know, they're sending money back to pump into the formula while the community itself may not be very uh, affluent, you know, the, the tax base is because of minerals. 
And that's the situation. So we've got, we've got for instance, school, uh, school district. It's in Fort Davis where the allotment for textbooks, you know, they, God forbid you're a superintendent and you have a CDL in my district because you're going to be driving a bus because of, you know, that's just the way it goes in some of these districts and, and for lack of funding. And so you've got an allotment for textbooks they, that they cannot spend on anything but textbooks. And to that end, the superintendent said, you know what, I, I need a bus driver. I've got $24,000 for books. I only need, you know, 2400 so he bought books and lined the hallway with them and said, this is all I can spend the money on. I either spend it on this or send it back, but I cannot spend. And we need to figure out, and again, it's, it's drilling down in, uh, deep but, and getting in the weeds, but we have to do it because it's those schools, especially in rural Texas, that suffer from being on the line. And it's always Dallas ISD or Houston ISD when you're talking about how the, the funding formulas and the equity uh, is, is uh, I guess, problematic. But we never get into the areas where these school districts for just a few dollars here and a few dollars there, it changes everything about how they have to go at right. hiring teachers, support staff. And you know, I, you know, and you heard my, my school board members that day, it's look, we do everything we can. We're trying to keep our taxes low, but the fact is, and I said, look, you don't have to say anything. You were there. I said, it's, yeah. it's our fault. It's our fault. And, and it's our fault in this sense is, we are not, since 2011, and Representative Ashby alluded to this, we have not been able to put back enough of the hole that we blew through it. And I'm not saying money solves every problem, but what I'm saying is we're way far behind. We need to do something. Uh, Mr. Price. Yeah, and I, I wanted to add one thing, which is a lot of folks, especially if they're not dialed into public education finance, it's not their... You know, they're concerned about it, but they don't know how it works, and it is a hard thing to understand, right. even for folks that deal with it on a regular basis. Uh, the political aspect of this is really important. So a lot of community, you know, members will say, well, I don't understand if everybody agrees it's, it's a problem, why can't y'all fix it? And the reality is uh, rural members, like everyone on this stage, has multiple school districts in their house district, for instance. So I've got over two dozen in mine, and I know all the members have multiple school districts, Chapter 41 and Chapter 42, right. large and small, very diverse you know, group of districts, because we all represent rural counties in rural Texas. Well, most of our members within the house, most of the membership itself, um, come from more heavily populated areas. So many members may have one district, one school district to represent, or maybe two, but they're gonna be very similar and homogenous in their nature. So when issues come out and proposals are made for changes to the public education finance system, right. all they need to look at, they don't even have to understand whether it's good overall or you know a, a good policy objective to pursue. If their school districts are going to lose money they're typically not going to vote for it because they don't want to go home and explain why they voted for something that may be good for the rest of Texas, but it's bad for but them. Not, not good for them. So it's very politically challenging because, you know, I think all of us are in a pretty good spot to make good decisions because no matter what proposal is out there, most of us have some districts that are, are going to, uh, you know, maybe receive less money and some that are going to receive more, but we can look at it from a standpoint of what makes the most sense for yeah, the whole and the and the and this you know the the school districts across the state and the five million students that we have an obligation to protect. So anyway, I think politically that's that's an impediment that's going to be uh, it's going to be present no matter what school finance debate we have. That's right. one reason I'm so proud that we did what we did last session. And, and you know, uh, Evan, to to Representative Price's point, as I remember my first session, I, I thought to myself, you know, how am I going to thread this needle 
that you know I'm supposed to thread, and the and the truth is you can't. And until we figure out a way that we don't really have to make that tough decision about how that equity formula works, where you know a school in, in Representative Ashby's district is at 5,000, and there's one that's at 11, and I've got several in my in my di in my district that are like that, and how do I how do I balance it out? And the yeah. and the answer to that is, you know, we. We, uh, we have to wield more clout when that discussion, and I think we do, and I mean, you look on the stage, and I'm not saying this to, to puff up my colleagues, but there's a wealth and breadth of experience up here that's, I mean, as I'm thinking about it, and we're hearing these things, it's staggering. I mean, this is awesome. Yep. And, uh, and I, I think that this is, these are the types of leaders in the House that can do this, and we've got some more. I mean, this, we're not limited, although, Right now, I'd probably say these are the best because they're up here. Because right? <laughs> they're but, uh, smart, smart men. Uh, Ch Chairman Darby, part B of this conversation is the higher ed component. We talk all the time about how we're adding more than 80,000 kids to the Texas public education system every year. You are adding a significant number to higher ed. When we talk about higher ed, we're talking about not only four-year flagships and regional campuses, but also more than 50% of the enrollees in higher ed in Texas are in community colleges. You all have a lot of community colleges within your districts. Those are really the places where a lot of the future citizens, future workers of Texas are being educated at the moment. What are, what are we going to do to ensure that rural Texas has adequate access to higher ed as well as public ed, including the funding necessary? You know, I would say that uh, judging from past budget cycles, and I appreciate Representative Ashby chiming in here, but it seems if we, we've had a a part of our economy that has suffered the most from funding is higher education. Yeah. Uh, seems like they're always last to be considered, last to be appropriated for, last to be uh, listened to on their needs. It's always, it's, it's always been, well, you, we can shift that to the families. And we know about what debt has done to families in this state. And, and, and the challenge is to make sure we have formulas that work, that make sense, but yet, again, when I look across the budget and I see, I see disingenuous conversations about what the state is doing to help families in education, while at the same time, the state is cutting back on its share of that responsibility. So you believe that the, all the talk about the state no longer funding either public or higher ed to the degree it once did, that, that is a material conversation I mean, that let me we tell need you, to be having. I've, I've seen several moons, but I can remember my, my father driving down the road and he, he looked over and there was a gentleman on, on a tractor and he said, son, you need to thank the guy on the tractor because he, he, he's helping fund education here in Texas, both higher and public. And I think that's where we've gotten away from. We've gotten away from our primary responsibility as a state to educate the next generation. Yeah. And so we all, you hear a lot of folks decry rising property taxes. And absolutely, we all, we all are suffering from a high property tax uh, based system. But all the while we are claiming that we would like to see relief, we right. are encouraging that growth because in the public education sector, our budget anticipated almost 14% increase in property values to fund education. And so while we're, we're, while we're, we're railing against higher property tax values and higher property tax revenue, the reality is the state benefits from it. Yeah. And so our share of public education has gone from over 50% to 
to 38%, and now in the next year it's going to go to 35%. Right. So the same thing is true in higher education. We have shifted. We The state has considered it a less obligation on the part of the state to help fund higher education. It ought to be exactly the opposite. We ought to be investing, investing in our young folks, and making sure that that uh, they do receive the technical training in the higher education, and it comes at an affordable price. Right. And they shouldn't be burdened with that debt when they get out. Uh, Ms. Gonzalez, let me ask you uh, to move over from higher ed to ag. You're the vice chair of the Ag and Livestock Committee. You and Mr. Ashby are two of maybe more who, you grew up around ag. Right. That's right. You grew up on a dairy farm, That's is correct. that right? A goat dairy farm. I didn't yeah. know you were on a there dairy you farm. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we, we don't talk about agriculture too much in the legislature proportional to the importance of agriculture to the state of Texas. But clearly there's a lot that the legislature touches that affects ag. So look into the next session. What are we going to be talking about from an ag perspective? In the next well, session. let me just say this. I filed 22 bills on the first day of pre-filing, and three were major ag bills, maybe four. And so right. I'll tell you what we're going to talk about, because I'm part of creating the agenda. We're going to be talking about bees, because we need pollinators, natural pollinators, and they come to the state of Texas. I love how specific that answer is. That's <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready. Yeah. We're going to talk about we're going to talk about crop disease prevention, because we have a plan when it comes to animal disease prevention. We're right. going to talk about crop disease prevention. Um, we're going to talk about pecan thievery in my district. So millions of dollars in pecans are being stolen on, at night, and so we're going to talk about that. But here's what I will say. She said thievery, right? Thievery. 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 You know, I'll tell you a really funny story. The when I first got into the legislature, you know, you put to down which committees you want. And uh, it's like Christmas on the House floor. If you've been naughty, you get bad committees. If you've been nice, you get good committees. <laughs> so the freshman year. Oh, now you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> My freshman year, they're reading out the, the names, and I get, you know, Mary Gonzalez, House Livestock and Ag, Ag and Livestock Committee. And, and I went to Tracy King, the chairman. I go, oh, chairman, I'm so excited to be on your committee. And Tracy didn't really know me at the time. He just shook his head. He's like, Mary Edna, did you ask to be on this committee? He thought I was being punished. And I said, oh, yes, sir, it's my first choice. <laughs> and he just looked at me. I guess if he just looked at me, he just never thought someone like me would love agriculture. And I explained to me, well, ag is probably the most important industry in the state of Texas. Right. It's, it's greater than that. Yeah. Um, my house burned down when I was 10 years old in the middle of the night, three days before Christmas. and. Um, you know, we watched our house burn down, and the people who were first there were all the farmers, and they picked me up and my brother up, and they get housed us, and gave us food and clothes for an entire year, and helped us rebuild. And yep. you know, to me, ag is it's um, community, it is um, culture, it is it is so much more than just the financial part of it. I want my future children to grow up raising dairy heifers and goats just the way I did. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I want um, them to be surrounded by this culture and community that believes that we are interconnected to each other through because we, we depend on each other to survive, literally for food and fiber. And so my passion and, uh, for ag is, it is sown into me from my childhood. And I, right. I think ag is at a crossroads. Right. I think if we don't protect it now, 20 years from now it will not exist in the ways we need right. it to exist. M Mr. Ashby, the thing is, there's a personal yeah. choice. 
You can tell why we love Mary. Yeah. There's, why a, we love there's Mary. a personal aspect to it that Representative Gonzalez, uh, you know, conveys very uh, convincingly, sincerely. But there's also a significant economic development aspect to ag as it relates to the healthy economy that we enjoy in Texas that can't be denied. Absolutely. So from a legislative, a legislative standpoint, what on the agenda has to happen to ensure that ag can continue to contribute to the economy of the state? What has to happen? Well, uh, you know, my first reaction to that question is, you know, a lot of, let me in the district I represent, it is an agriculture timber-based yeah. uh, uh, a part of the the state and uh, and I will tell you when when I'm talking to my farmers and ranchers as well as uh, our uh, timber growers really what they want is just to be left alone <laughs> uh, they want to keep government out of their hair um, and um, so you know when I think about this I don't necessarily think about new policies I think about you know frankly trying to rein in uh, some regulatory agencies that uh, sometimes I think uh, misunderstand uh, the people they're supposed to be working with in terms of farmers and ranchers. Um, and, uh, and I do think that it's important to, you know, recognize the fact that just like, you know, Mary, the people that live in rural Texas that are involved in agriculture, you know, they're passionate about it. And in many cases, it's generational. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I am, uh, you know, son of a dairy farmer, you know, proud to be raised on a, on a farm and, and still uh, involved in, in timber and livestock. And uh, I do that just you know, like the same reason I, I choose to live in, in East Texas is because uh, you know I'm, that's where I want to be. And the people that are involved in agriculture, they want to be involved in agriculture. And so you know whether it's policies through the committee uh, on, that uh, Mary serves on or whether it's working with our regulatory agencies, you know, I just think we have to be responsive to what they want. And, uh, yep. and so largely, like, as I said, it's not so much new policies, it's we just want to be uh, recognized for our contributions uh, because as, as is, you know, I hear a lot of times there are FFA and F4Hers say this all the time, if you, if you eat, you're involved in agriculture. And that's all of us. Right. And so all of us have a vested interest in seeing a flourishing, vibrant agriculture economy across this great state, whether it's down in you know, the Citrus Valley, uh, down in the valley, or dairy country out in El Paso, or up in the Amarillo with Cotton. Everything. I mean, they've got all the commodities up there, and and uh, Drew over there with all his. We're going ranchers. oil and gas rigs. Mohair. Right well, yeah. well, let me let me go to the in the interest of time. Let me go to the oil and gas. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned oil and gas. In the interest of time, to Mr. Navarro, Mr. Price, Mr. Darby, the, the, the energy sprawl in rural Texas, Mr. Navarro, has been a it's has been a big part of the economic health of Texas, when, when oil and gas activity in Texas is up, the Texas economy is soaring, we're a little bit better insulated against the downturns than we would have been a generation ago. Things are coming back up, so people tend to be in a little bit more of a good mood. This is a big part of the conversation next session, presumably, as well. I mean, it should be part of the conversation every session and a lot during the session. I, I, uh, you know, I sit on, on, the east, on the eastern edge, we have the Eagleford, and then to the west and to the north, we've got, uh, you know, the Permian Plate. And, you know, we, when was it, last session, during the middle of the session, you know, I think it was Apache announced the largest find of natural gas in the history of the world. I mean, pretty much that. And so Friday, I was, I was in Mexico, and I was at a, a, the largest and most modern brewery in the world. They make 24 million bottles of Corona a day. And it's, uh, if you haven't gone, I, I'd invite you to visit it. It is it's something to see. It's 20 miles from the border, like from my, 
I live right on the river, so about from, how the crow flies from my house, maybe 25 miles. But what struck me about the whole deal is it's fired by Texas LNG. Mm. And, you know, for those of us that represent rural Texas, you know, I always keep an eye, and, and Representative Ashman made a good point about this, and especially with oil and gas is, we have to keep an eye, and I always laugh when they say, oh, you're a, a big government Democrat. I'm like, if you only knew, you know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we have to keep an eye on what's going on in Washington because we are really sensitive, not just to the actual policy itself, but what the talk means regarding the policy. And so, you know, I, I was talking to the, the plant manager and one of the owners that came in from Chicago, uh, from Constellation Brands, and he says, you know, for us, LNG is, for us to work efficiently and to bring our product to the market and do what we do, if we did not have access to this, yep. which is, you know, Texas's biggest export right now, we'd be in trouble. And so we, I mean, it is an understatement to say that rural Texas right now is providing a boom. It makes Houston go, it makes Dallas go, it right. makes New Orleans go. That's a good point. I mean, you go for any market from here to, you know, Charlottesville and all yep. the way to New, I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, the play is out there. And I mean, we were going on a ski trip. This was uh, at the, the uh, during last session, we were on a ski trip. My dad's with me and we're driving up from Pecos to, uh, to Orla and then up to the New Mexico state line. And, you know, to that end, uh, I think we mentioned something about roads, especially in the oil patches. You know, Highway 285 was in bad shape and it is in bad shape. So as we're driving through, it's getting dark and you can see the, the casing had gas being burnt out and, and there's some rusted cars and there's some big old potholes. And my dad turns to me and says, you ought to have your ass kicked having a road like this in your district. So, <laughs> so, I love like that. that in district. He's putting that on you. I love yeah. that. So, so, and, and so, and it struck me is, you know what? We, we have, we providing to, not just to the state, but to the world, this right. awesome, awesome resource that powers yeah. everything. And I'm having to scrap for pennies to try to put some gravel in a hole and then have to deal with my dad going to kick my ass the next time we get off the <laughs> Dad, dads are like that, I get it. Uh, Chairman Darby, so you're chair of that committee. Yeah. What is the big issue for you next session? Yeah. <laughs> Today I'm chair of that committee. <laughs> I'm not betting against you, Chairman. Um, what, what's the big issue in the next session as it relates to keeping the good thing going that has been energy in rural Texas? Well, I can tell you, stay out of the way. I mean, these guys know what they're doing. They know what's out there. This is a most incredible bounty this state could ever, and this country could yeah. ever enjoy. Uh, they're limited. They know what's there. They know how to get it out. They're limited by the people that they can employ to get it out. They need 200,000 new employees. Where are they gonna live? Yep. Mm -hmm. Where are they gonna go, go to church? Where are they gonna get hospital services? And how are they gonna get there through roads? You have enough of a workforce to, to, to do what you need to do no, in these parts no. of the state? No, right now, right now uh, uh, Don Evans has formed, they formed a group called the Permian Strategic Partnership. It's the 10 largest Permian producers. Yeah. And just those 10 largest Permian producers, just them, if they're allowed to develop their holdings in the way and the time that they want to over the next 12 years, for example, the Rainy Day Fund, we put about $1.7 billion into the Rainy Day Fund from severance taxes. If they're allowed, just those 10 are allowed to develop their properties, we'll put over $12 billion wow. yeah. in a buy-in. That's not property taxes. 
That's not sales taxes. That's just severance taxes. Close to free money as it's going to get, right? It's, yeah. But but the challenge is they don't have the the personnel to get it. And if they had the personnel, there's no place for them to live. Right. And so uh, one thing I think is going to be important is is a way that we can save Poncho's ass. Yeah. And, <laughs> And can't, that, can't wait to hear this. <laughs> is, more than one is, word, right? is, you know, Representative White had a bill last session, and I think he's already filed this session, to take a small percentage of severance taxes before it pours over into the rainy day fund and divert those back to the, uh, the counties that have the energy-related road damages. I think it's a great idea. Just take part of that bounty so and move it back. So you're supporting that again? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to go to audience questions here in a couple minutes. I want to touch on two more things very quickly. Chairman Price, let me ask you about this first. As you serve on natural resources alongside Representative Navarez and Representative Ashby, water and land issues for rural Texas continue to be a challenge. We're five years since the SWIFT funding mechanism was approved by the voters of Texas. Water Development Board is saying good things have come and, and are happening on that front. But obviously, this is still a concern. These natural resource issues, can, as the population of Texas goes from 28 million today yeah. to 54 million in, in 2050. What, what should be on the minds of the legislature as it relates to those issues for rural in the next session? Well, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because uh, everything we've talked about today, whether it's energy related or agriculture related, whether it's economic development, manufacturing, right. all of this relates back to how uh, each of our communities has a, a you know, relationship to its water supply. And for where I live, for instance, it's all groundwater. We don't have any surface water really to speak of, and so we rely on it for our municipal use, we rely on it for energy production, we rely on it for irrigated agriculture, uh, beef cattle, poultry, swine, you know, everything that we have up in, in the Panhandle uh, is really there because of our water supply. Now, uh, you know, the, the Natural Resources Committee that we serve on uh, is chaired by Chairman Larson. Uh, I don't think anybody works harder um, understanding water issues in the state of Texas than he has. And I'm really proud of the fact that we, we passed some really good bills in the House last session. Not all of them made it to the finish line. Uh, so I think you know, determining and recognizing in advance that we don't need to react to drought situations, we need to prepare for it. That was the catalyst for HB4 back in 2013. Those are the kind of things we need to do. So whether it's finding uh, alternative mechanisms for aquifer storage and recovery methods, you know, so that we can store more water for future use, uh, which we do very little of in Texas, whether it's making desalination more economical to develop water that can be used, whether it's programs, we're actually just keeping our, our groundwater conservation districts, for instance, from, from you know, doing things that might be uh, harmful from a regulatory standpoint. These are all things that make a big difference in the day-to-day -day operation of, of agriculture, energy, manufacturing, yeah. the things I've mentioned. So I'm very uh, sure that, that there won't be a session uh, here in the next couple of months or any point in the future that water issues don't play a significant role in what we're doing and they will be debated and and I think a lot of the bills that didn't make it across the finish line will be refiled and certainly uh, tweaked. Several were vetoed by Governor Abbott. Is Governor going to sign any bill with Chairman Larson's name on it? That's odd. That's a great question. I don't know. You're going to have to ask Governor Abbott, but I, uh, I suspect we will see 
some of those bills refiled and moved and whether his name is on them or right. someone else files We're pulling them. for a kumbaya moment as far yeah, as yeah absolutely uh, anything's right. possible right all right so the last question to the group and again line up please if you have questions for our group at the microphones and we'll come to you in a second a through line to everything we've talked about or a lot of what we talked about education chairman ashby public and higher health care telemedicine chairman price economic development is access to rural broadband it's 2018, and it is still spotty at best. There are still communities of haves and have-nots as it relates to broadband, and we all know the situation here. If you're a public school student, 70% of the teachers give homework that require your access to the internet. If you want to apply for a job, you need access to broadband. If you want to apply to college, you need access to broadband. Economic development hinges on the access to broadband that these communities have, or if you don't have it, you don't get it. Ms. Gonzalez, why can't we, we put a man on the moon? Why can't we wire rural Texas? Because it's hard. <laughs> I mean, the, the problem is, is Texas is huge, right? Like, I mean, and that's just really been the problem connecting some of these more outskirts areas. But can I tell, I'm a, I love this topic, but they love this topic. So let me just say this. In my district, one of my school districts, Ornio ISD, still has arsenic in their water. They don't have broadband, but they still don't have clean water. 63 million Texans, mostly in rural Texas. You should have asked about rural arsenic as opposed to rural water. <laughs> are, are, drinking, are drinking unsafe cleaning water, uh, unsafe water, right? And so one of the most transformative programs that has set the die, um, unless we re revive it this next session, is the Economically Distressed Areas Program, which all the gentlemen have helped me get through. And so, and, and it died in the Senate last time because yep. we're, um, it is a transformative for water and wastewater infrastructure in Texas. And while broadband is important, we still have school districts that don't have adequate wastewater infrastructure right. that struggle when it's a heavy rain flushing their toilets. Yeah, and it, is, it is hard to get in a digital age when we're not yet apparently in an right. age where we have access to water. I, I'll say that's, yeah. that's, that's important, but I need to be able to stream SpongeBob, so we got to be able to. <laughs> so you, you, it's, not, it's not both end, it's either or, it's both end. Yeah. Is that right? This is why he gets beat up. Yeah. <laughs> there is some good news uh, on the uh, broadband connectivity in our rural ISDs uh, last session, um, the state took advantage of a, a, a grant from the federal government. We put in 25 million to draw down 250 million, uh, which was supposed to help us uh, over the next few years have broadband connectivity in all the school districts across the great state of Texas. And this is being administered by the Texas Education Agency. And, uh, and, that, and that is performing well. Progress. Right. There's definitely progress being made. But to the larger point, um, now, don't quote me on this. This is information my staff gave me, so it may or may not be correct. <laughs> but 46% uh, of uh, all rural Texans uh, don't have access to broadband connectivity. And, uh, I mean, think about that. I mean, that's a staggering. Half, half the state. Yeah. Or to, half, the, half the rural half residents. Rural. That's right. right yeah. And uh, having been on dial-up, I can tell you it's, it's not great. It's no fun. Uh, but uh, I, I would just say, and again, I, I know this, uh, everyone agrees, but we've got to do better than this. And uh, they, they, the answer is, unfortunately, it's, it's hard. But we've got to continue to focus on it because yeah. the reasons that you just uh, illustrated a minute ago. Okay. Let's, let's bring questions up. We'll get as many people up on the stage here to uh, answer them as we can, try to get as many people into the conversation as possible. Sir and then ma'am. Thank you. There was some uh, mention earlier of loosening restrictions on producers of energy and agriculture as far as uh, environmental uh, regulation, I think. 
and yet there was concern mentioned about the quality of, of waterways and drinking water. Right. Uh, so my question is, how, how much uh, loosening of restrictions do you do uh, without violating right. uh, Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act? Um, in other words, how, how, how much are you going to uh, loosen the restrictions? Chairman Darby, where is the, the choke point? Where is the balance between enabling activity but also making certain, as everybody wants here, yeah. to protect the uh, natural yeah, resources? I, th I think um, under the current administration, there's been a, an effort to transfer and delegate part of that national EPA back down to the local TCEQ. And so uh, we, we, we've made some progress to allow the, the TCEQ to interject themselves and administer that program. And I think we've made some good strides. Uh, there is a balance. I mean, we, we all, I, I drove to Lubbock this past weekend and I mean, you could read a book uh, out in the field with all the flare gas uh, going um, and that's methane that's that's going up in the air and that's that's obviously a air issue uh, but in order to produce that oil and gas that casing head gas has to be burned off there's not enough in infrastructure in place to capture it and transport it to market so they have to in order to produce the oil they have to burn the, the casing head gas so uh, that relates to it makes areas around San Antonio became uh, in non-attainment this past time uh, this past uh, year, I believe. So um, those are issues that we're continuing monitoring, but I will say that uh, but uh, there has been a transfer of delegated authority back to the states, which I think is a good thing. Do you think that's positive? Ma'am. Howdy. Um, I think this uh, question is more for Mr. Price. Is that your name? Yes. <laughs> okay, excellent. I Maybe. heard that you are. I don't are... know. <laughs> yeah, it depends on the question. I think you'd like to know what the question that. is first before we um, I uh, heard that you were on the opioid committee, and I actually suffer from a medical condition that is known as, I'm sorry, um, the most painful medical condition that is known to science, called complex regional pain syndrome. Uh, I too am worried about the opioid um, epidemic. Um, I also have problems accessing pain medication. Um, one thing that I have noticed is, um, at least in terms of what I can afford, uh, medical marijuana is something that helps a lot. And it is something that is, it's um, not physically addictive. Um, it's much less harder on your body than opiates. Um, of course, I'm stuck with opiates because I don't have another option. And I was wondering um, where you see Texas going in terms of maybe moving towards medical marijuana as a way to help treat some people that have uh, very tr painful conditions. It's a terrific question. Yeah. You know, on the ballot last Tuesday were a lot of initiatives in states where medical marijuana became more readily available, and there are a number of bills filed in the legislature already pre-filed on this right. issue. So it's Chairman. a great question, yeah. and thank you. It's always hard to share a personal experience, and you're really nice to bring it up. And I think the the first point I make was with respect to the committee's work, um, you know, we, we made very clear that we did not want to restrict access to uh, folks who have chronic pain or end of life, uh, you know, any of the situations where that totally makes sense. Uh, so, so, you know, to alleviate any concern about that, um, that's not the intention or, or goal of the committee. So I don't anticipate any legislation to restrict access where it's absolutely appropriate. With regard to medical cannabis use, uh, in the last few sessions, what I have seen is a shift in the legislature's understanding and um, 
and, and willingness to, to look at that. And what we saw was a bill passed uh, using CBD oil for epilepsy um, patients, uh, children especially, that, that suffer from certain conditions. And that passed a couple of sessions ago. Um, and, and what I anticipate, there was a bill last session that, um, that didn't make it across the finish line, but had significant support. And it kind of got into the process late into the session, meaning it died really, there was not enough time to get it out of calendars before the, the, the deadline to vote on it on the floor. And, and my uh, opinion is if there is a very well-crafted, narrowly tailored bill that would alleviate the concerns that people have with regard to abuse, or, or, you know, uh, too loose prescription standards or something that's not accountable, um, that both appeases the medical community and the science backs it up and the uh, law enforcement community where they have concerns. I absolutely think there is um, enough will in the legislature to see a tightly drafted uh, bill on medical marijuana uh, pass in the legislature. Does that go through your committee, public it, health? It would go through public health. It would. Sir. Uh, first of all, thanks, Evan and Texas Tribune for doing this symposium. Sure. Uh, I think as an environmentalist, I've always thought that rural Texas and the environment had a lot in common. Uh, and also after 36 uh, years of lobbying legislature and being uh, in a position of answering questions from legislators, <laughs> I love the opportunity to ask, actually well, ask legislators Let questions. me strongly encourage you to ask one. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, so, um, a number of years ago, the Texas legislature said that groundwater conservation districts were the preferred method of managing groundwater in Texas. Mm. And yet, in the last few sessions of the legislature, it seems like a number of bills have been um, introduced, at least, uh, to uh, try to undermine the authority or put additional restrictions on the ability of groundwater conservation districts to actually manage groundwater. And the legislature has never really provided the resources to groundwater conservation districts to do an effective job of management. So uh, are we moving from a system where groundwater conservation districts are the preferred way of managing groundwater? Or what is the status? And what do you think the next legislature will Mr. Navarez? I would say no. Uh, I, I, thought, I thought that for a while, you know, this, this, this would be my second session on natural resources. And I really believe that. Maybe there was a shift, but then even with those bills that you mentioned that seemed to kind of cut away or, or chip away, I really didn't see that. What I saw is there were some tweaks that I believe needed to happen in order, in order to add a little bit more uniformity to certain things we were doing in the permitting process, for instance. But I, I believe by and large, even with the amount of complaints that one might see about X groundwater district as opposed to Y, or the amount of other ideas that seem to be floating around, I don't think we have a better way to do it. And, it, and frankly, you know, we, I have some constituents that said, you know, we, we'd prefer if the state took this over. And I was shocked from, you know, who, who it was coming from. We're talking about water producers. And I said, you don't want that. I mean, this, this may not be perfect. And to me, it's the epitome of local control because you set up the board, you know, we enact the, the legislation. The, the board is set up locally through an election. And, you know, I said, look, if you, if you want to make a change in how this works, you know, the permitting process, uh, the way you actually discuss water, you know, for a long time it was, there seemed to be a big concern about where the water was going. And I said, look, if it, if it fits the criteria of the groundwater district, you know, beneficial use, uh, you know, you're taking care of the local supply, then what does it matter if it's going to the moon or to the person right next door? It shouldn't matter. Right. And, and once we get over that, then we can see that 
groundwater districts really should be the, the end-all, be-all of it. And, you know, we can sit and debate whether regulation is too heavy or we're rolling back too much or taking too much teeth out of them. But the truth is local, local elections will decide that, and they should decide it. Okay. Um, I'm going to decree that we're going to take one more. Even though we're a little bit past 715, I'm going to take one more. Then we're going to go off to reception. We have a full day tomorrow. I hope many of your questions that you may still have will be answered over the course of that day. So in deference to our folks and to all of you, we'll do one more question. Sir. Last question. My name is John and I work for the rural hospitals in Texas. And this is a sincere question that any of you can take a shot at because I've been wrestling with it for a week. Uh, the election last week that I was most interested in was in Bosque County, Clifton, Texas, which is west of Waco. This is a, a county that Ted Cruz carried by 80%, so deep red county. But they also voted in favor of a new hospital district by 58% and essentially tax themselves to save their local hospital. And I have trouble squaring that in my mind with regard to what it means for the session and Medicaid and property taxes and uninsured in Texas. Do any of you want to try to take a shot at what that means for Texas, rural Texas healthcare? Does, I'm curious, do they uh, have a hospital there? And, and they had a, they had a hospital, but as an authority, not a, not a district, and so there was no tax revenue, and so they yeah. put a tax in place on themselves. I suppose there's a point at which people say enough, right. and, they're, and they're willing to find some solution that may not square with their politics. Well, I, yeah, exactly. My, my sense is, is that uh, if you've got to choose between, in this case, losing your hospital, and again, I'm assuming that it was, that was the situation. It was yeah. borderline in terms of making it, uh, and the issue comes down to, you know, dollars, and they could put a tax on themselves by the creation of the hospital district. In this case, they chose to keep their hospital there by taxing themselves, and uh, you know, more generally though, I think that again speaks to the issue that we talked about here, the crisis that we're facing in, across uh, rural Texas in terms of keeping our hospital doors open. Um, I'll give you one example. This, to me, is shocking. Uh, Southeast Texas, Orange County, Orange, Texas. 90,000 people, 89,000 people in that county. They lost their only hospital. Think okay. about that. 90,000 people in the county, and they can't afford to keep a hospital open. We've got a real problem in Texas in terms of rural health care, and we've got to roll up our sleeves and get to work. There are many counties throughout the state that you can't have a baby. Yeah. yeah. You can't deliver a baby. And so right. who's going to live in that? county if you can't deliver a baby in the county. Well, yeah. I think it speaks to all politics is local, right? I think that we can put things in these little boxes, but when it's impacting people's lives, it's always more complex. Like even like the vouchers thing, like we might say that's a partisan issue, but it really isn't. Politics is really local. It's about your local hospital, your local right. school, and so it really does make a difference. So nice to end on the point that all of this at the end of the day is local that it's not about politics, it's not about partisanship, it's about what works in these communities. Democrats and Republicans on stage agree on that, and I'm gonna let that be the last thing we do. Please, thanks. <laughs> Chairman Ashby, Chairman Darby, Representative Gonzalez, Navarez, Chairman Price. You've been listening to a conversation about rural Texas and the 86th legislature, recorded live at the George H.W. Bush Presidential Library and Museum in College Station. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conversations with the Texas Tribune. Visit texastribune.org slash events for more information about our public interviews. And if you like what you heard on this podcast, please be sure to rate us as awesome on your favorite platform and tell your friends about us. 
Until next time, I'm Evan Smith. 